All right, welcome to our Wednesday evening Bible class. Uh, we are in Exodus chapter 14 uh, for this class. Uh, if you have been a part of it, uh, you, you know, want to review a little bit to make sure we're staying on our chronological timeline thinking process. Uh, Israel, at this point in the account, has escaped Egypt. Moses has gone back and, and stood before Pharaoh, and God's plagues have been performed, including the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, including Pharaoh's son. Uh, and so Israel has now left uh, Egypt, and rather than going northwest, or rather north northeast, uh, toward Canaan, uh, God has taken them a different route because if they go northeast, they're going to see war pretty quickly, and God knows they're not ready for that just yet. Uh, but that seems to be only part of the issue. Uh, God takes them southeast, uh, and they camp. They camp for a while, and in fact, uh, they're at Etham for a few days. Uh, and during this time, I don't know whether it's while they're journeying to Etham, probably more likely while they are at Etham. Uh, Moses has this discussion with them about God's instructions for the Passover. They've already had that when they were in Egypt before the 10th plague. God has told them about this lamb and goat that was to be taken on the 10th day of the first month, which was the month they were in. And then on the 14th day, it was to be slain and, and it was to be eaten, cooked a, per a certain way and eaten in their homes, prepared to leave. And none of it was supposed to be left over. So now if they've gone to this place called Etham, and they're camping there, God explains in more detail uh, the implications of that and their remembering of it. They're supposed to perpetually keep this going all through this time that they are uh, under this covenant that God is bringing them into because they're supposed to remember two things. Uh, backwards, they're supposed to remember what God did for them in Egypt. And future, they're supposed to be looking toward and remembering that God's lamb is ultimately going to come to pay the sacrifice. And so they're looking for this one that will be called Messiah. That's the fulfillment, the true fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. So this is supposed to be perpetually remembered, the, the Passover day and the feast, the seven-day feast that immediately followed it, uh, and why it was supposed to happen and how it was supposed to happen and how they were supposed to pass it down to the next generation as they then would ask questions about it. Now, if we get to chapter 14... What's going to happen is they kind of turn from Etham to, to journey again, but they don't journey again toward Canaan. Uh, they kind of, God kind of leaves them in kind of a random looking pattern uh, and ultimately to a place where they will be camping again. And it'll be a place where they're virtually trapped uh, with no escape if uh, you know, anybody were to recognize their situation and pursue them, which is going to happen, obviously, with the Egyptians. So they're they're moving again, but it looks confused. It looks a little random, and it goes to a place where they uh, where they could easily be trapped. That kind of sets things up for what we're going to read in chapter fourteen. Yeah, I think you covered it all. Okay, chapter fourteen. Let's start in verse one. And now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Hahirath, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephron. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. And then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army. 
that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Now, there's another piece of information as to Pharaoh's thinking that's going to come up in just a moment, but just starting where we were, we have this journey that I have already mentioned in the review about what's going to happen, uh, this journey that God says, I want you to travel to a certain place, and, and the result of journeying here is Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened. But again, we get on that question of how did that happen? Uh, and so many people read it and just say, well, see, God's doing it, and so Pharaoh had no choice, and uh, no option to matter, and God just forced him to become hard, and he went out, and then he was killed because of it. And so they see God as being unloving because of the way that they have interpreted what's happening here. But what God has said here is that he's going to harden his heart, not through a direct action, but that it will be the result of the actions of Israel that God leads them into. And specifically, those actions are the direction he's taking them and where they're going to end up. See, Pharaoh's going to say, based on what we just read, Pharaoh's response to what he sees, which means, by the way, he, he doesn't have satellites or anything like that. So this clearly tells us he has people out here watching. He has spies out here watching. And I think that'll come into play in the next few verses we read. But the report back is that Israel is journeying in and they're, they're confused. They don't know which way they're going, which to Pharaoh immediately makes them an easy target. The second thing is where they are going traps them between the sea and the mountains. And so the consequence of that is, again, they're going to be easy targets. So immediately what God says is, though Pharaoh was crushed at the death of his son and told Israel to get out of the land, he now sees them as easy to overtake again and bring them back again. So his idea is, uh, they're in trouble. I'm going to go while they're at their weakest point, and I'm going to recapture them and bring them back. Yeah, you see here that Pharaoh's remorse was only like very short-lived because once he is tempted again, once God sets this ambush or trap for him, Pharaoh's heart takes a full 180 once again to go after Israel. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 5. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people, and they said, Why have we done this, that they have let Israel go from serving us? Now, before we see his response, I want you to think about their thinking, because there's something strange, in, at least in my view, as to how this is uh, worded. Uh, what we hear is the people get this report, or see that Israel is going the wrong way, but the text says that they fled. Now, if you read that as the people saying, uh, they're upset that Israel has left Egypt, then you're reading it wrong. Because what we read when Israel left Egypt is they told them to leave. Uh, Pharaoh said, get out and get out now. So they were not surprised that they left Egypt. So what it appears to be the case is uh, what Pharaoh was still holding on to, or maybe the people were holding on to, is that idea of where the whole discussion started when Moses said to Pharaoh, that God said, let my people go three days into the wilderness that they may worship God. And so they're still holding up this idea that maybe Israel's going to go out for three days, as they told them to leave, and then they're going to come back. But enough time has passed now, and a direction change has, has caused them to say, they're not coming back. They're fleeing. So again, it's like Pharaoh, though he, though he tried to negotiate with God, and God would not negotiate, Pharaoh now thinks... Uh, you know, he's going to go back and capture them, and so he's going to kind of get his his compromise anyway. So his heart is hardened, and the people around him, their hearts are hardened as well, because they now see that Israel looks vulnerable. 
I, I just love that Pharaoh asks, why have we stopped from letting them serve us? Because I can give you ten good reasons why you let them go. Yeah, right. <laughs> Including the loss of his son. Yeah, like there are ten really good reasons, and yet the second he sees an opportunity, God allows to manipulate the situation for Pharaoh to once again show his true colors. Yeah. Okay, verse 6. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen, his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Hahirath and before Baal-Zephon. So, again, I want to make sure you understand uh, the text. What we're reading here, when we read about these chariots, we're not reading about an army of 600 going out against the 600,000 males that were able to go to war that left Egypt. Of Israel, We're not reading about 600 against 6,000. We're reading about captains in chariots. So what you're reading about is 600, if you will, regiments. So there's a captain in a chariot over a, an individual regiment of the Egyptian army. So you have 600 of these regiments leaving uh, at the instruction and leadership even of Pharaoh. So this is a significant battle force that's going out to uh, capture the Israelites. So it's like... It's like, at least in my mind, I get this idea that Pharaoh, we saw him begin to recognize God's power. We saw his magicians pretty early on turn to Pharaoh and say, look, we can't do what this God is doing. He's pretty powerful, so you need to listen. And as it went on, even to the death of his son, Pharaoh has recognized God's power. And so like he now is now uh, displaying his own power. So this God that left, left, led them out, he has shown a weakness in Pharaoh's mind by leading them to a place where they're trapped. Pharaoh now is showing a display of strength by trying to go in and capture them and their God because all battles, at least in their minds, were one God against another God. So he's got the opportunity to defeat them and defeat their God and bring his slaves back home. As far as recorded history goes, at this time, Egypt had the best military that we know of. And Israel had what they could carry on their backs which is probably next to nothing. Yep. And yet we're told the children of Israel went out with boldness. And that word boldness, I just want to focus on for a second because it's a weird word. We translate it as boldness, but the in the Hebrew language it has like a, it signifies rebellion, signifies like a standing up for what is right. So it's not just a battle of physicalness. It's a battle of right versus evil. And I think that's going to play a big role throughout the rest of this chapter. I think, I think it, it, it kind of gives us the idea there that they're celebrating their victory as they go. Yeah. So, Okay, verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. I see a couple things here uh, that I find intriguing, and that is how quickly they go from that idea of victory and you know right conquering over wrong to this idea of oh no we're in trouble you know uh, they did not fight in Egypt all the things that happened in Egypt that caused Pharaoh to let them go it was not because of Israel's uh, strength it was not because of anything they accomplished it was all that God was doing it so now as they're out here in this trapped location if you will and they look up and they see this army of the Egyptians approaching 
they have never been at war. They have never been able to fight and defend themselves. And so they know they cannot. And so they're immediately afraid. But what I love is this fear is not what we will find in them at other times. Fear at other times causes people to uh, to not do what God says. What it does in this case is cause the people to turn to God and say, okay, we can't do this. And before, remember, when, when Moses first showed up and uh, talked to Pharaoh and Pharaoh made everything harder on the Israelites, they didn't complain to God. They complained to Moses. So now they're, I, I think they're seeing this idea of this is all God's direction and God's doing, and Moses is not going to defeat Egypt. This is going to be God doing it. So in their fear, they do the right thing, and that is to turn to God. Yeah, exactly. I think um, if they could just hold on to this feeling throughout the rest of their journey in the wilderness that when they are without help, when they feel like they can't stand up to what they're facing, they cry to God. And yet, when we get further down the road, obviously that attitude changes. But right now, it's like very inspiring. But but anybody that gets the idea that your faith is needs to be perfect <laughs> is going to always struggle. And, and the fact that that is presented right before these next two verses uh, show us that their faith was a real living faith. And what I mean by that is they were real humans. They had learned to have a trust in God, but even in that trust, there was struggle. Remember the man that said, uh, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And you say, how can you believe and have unbelief? Well, when when it is impossible, when the situation is impossible and you turn to God, you turn to him because you believe he's the only one that can handle it. What you struggle is, how is this even possible to be handled? I don't understand a God who can accomplish this. And that's kind of where they are. So their faith, though it is a, though it has a, is at a place where they know God is the one who can deliver them, struggles with whether it's even possible. Let's start in verse 11. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. So you see their struggle. You know, they are afraid, so they turn to God, but then they say to Moses, How did we get in this mess? You know, did you lead us out here to die? Is this going to be the end of it all? And I love the fact that they do what most of us do, and that is they revise history. (laughs) You know, when Moses showed up, you remember God met him at the burning bush? And God said, I have heard the cry of my people. Was God saying, I've heard my people say, just leave us alone, we're okay here? No, that's not what they were crying out. Moses went back and stood before the people because they were in turmoil. They were struggling and God was going to bring them out of that captivity. They had been looking for that leader and were thrilled uh, that God was sending that leader. What they struggled with was it didn't happen the way that they wanted it to happen, the way they envisioned it happening. Uh, It just didn't go on their time scale and the way they wanted it to happen or thought it should happen. So, But now they revised it. They didn't tell them, just leave us alone. Moses, we don't really need a leader. No, they were behind him. They just weren't behind the way it worked. During this time of like uncertainty and doubt, it's interesting that they're never ridiculed for this. That falling into like being unsure of the plan is never something worth ridiculing. Even when you go back to when God first met Moses, Moses goes ahead and questions the methods of God. And he's not ridiculed for that because God understands that we're humans. Yep. That doubt exists. As long as we let him lead the way, it works out. And we don't always understand. Yeah. 
Okay, verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. So clearly there's been some kind of discussion with God that's not recorded, where God has instructed Moses, uh, here's what needs to happen. And by the way, that idea of stand still, that doesn't mean stop moving. That's the idea of calm down. You know, they're about to panic. Uh, and if they, in their fear, start to panic, then what's going to happen? Well, everybody's going to run off any singular way they can go. Somebody's going to be hiding here or hiding there, and they're going to scatter. Uh, and, and, and the Egyptians, in that perspective, will just be able to pick them back off. Uh, so what Moses says from God is, now calm down, settle down just a little bit, and wait for God to answer. And I love that because, well, here's the way it works with us. We're told by Peter to cast our burdens or our cares on God, to cast them to God, and to leave them there. That's the idea of that, uh, so that we can depend on him. We, we trust him, and God answers those prayers. We're told by James that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And we know that, and so when we struggle, especially in life, and we turn it to God, we try to hand it over to Him. But the problem with that is, when we, we, we say the prayers, we have the intentions, and then we carry it right back out with us in our life, and we try to control all of it ourselves anyway. And God says, you know, once in a while, it's time to just back up and let God do what He's got to do. You can't force your will to be God's will. If you're going to trust Him enough to pray then trust him and his answer as well. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating here, you know, say a prayer to God and sit back and let nothing happen. I'm just saying, why do you take things to God and then turn away and worry and panic and, and stress about things in your life that you've supposed, supposedly given to God? And that's what Moses is saying to them here. All right, you gave it to God. Now stop worrying about it. Settle down, stop panicking, and trust God's answer. Although God probably already shared his plan, or at least part of it, with Moses, from like a human perspective, God's plan doesn't make a lot of sense. How, how, do you believe Moses did understand that? <laughs> right. Oh, part the sea? What? <laughs> so Moses getting up and telling the people just to stop and calm down still took an extreme amount of faith, even if God had already explained yeah. what was going to happen. Yeah, and I imagine going to the people with that plan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh yeah, God's going to part the sea in here just a minute. Part the sea? <laughs> Okay, verse uh, 15. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Now, stop there just a second. I find this interesting wording again because of, as we have already been discussing, the people and Moses certainly have a level of faith, but it's not a perfect faith. And so God at one point now says, you know, stand still or calm down. And then now he says, uh, why aren't you moving? So you see, you have to figure out what is what does the difference in the two things mean? And that's why I emphasize that the first one means calm down. It doesn't mean stop doing anything. Because that's what I hear here. God is challenging their faith to grow. It's one thing to have a faith that says, okay, we're in trouble. Let's ask God for help. It's another thing to do what God tells you to do when he tells you to do it. 
So evidently in this discussion, what's happened is the people are crying out to God and Moses is crying out to God. God, we need you to deliver us. And God's saying, well, if you believe that I'm going to deliver you, why are you just standing there? Uh, I remember an old story that was told, and I don't even know if it's true, but it was a, a, in an old country church and, you know, the kind of church that's out in the middle of all the old farms and everything. Some of you probably relate to that that uh, memory or whatever. Uh, I remember those old country churches, and there was one of them that all the farms around were really struggling because there was a particular drought. And so uh, the preacher there had sent word around to all of the families living on all the farms that, you know, on such and such day, let's get together, all of us at the church building together, and let's all pray uh, for God to bring us some rain to save all of our crops and all of that. And then uh, when the night came that they were all going to get together and everybody started showing up, he sent them all home and canceled it. And they wanted to know why. Why are we not going to approach God in prayer? And his answer was, because you came here to pray for rain and not a single one of you brought an umbrella. And I see that in this account. These people saying, God deliver us. Wait, cross the sea? I don't know that I'm going to walk out into, hey, cross the water. I'm not going to walk out of that. And I get that. You know, if, if, if I were standing on the beach here in Stewart today and, and the water parted and said, okay, start walking to the Bahamas. That'd be a tough walk, wouldn't it? You know, the first couple of steps would be kind of cautious. And I have to admit, uh, the deeper I got, the faster I'd be walking because I want to make it all the way across. And at some point, there's there's no return, right? So their faith is there, but it needs to grow. So God says, just do what I ask you to do. It's um, The story is like very relevant to like just human experience that it's easy to realize you're in a bad situation and that you need help from God or an outside source, it's a lot harder to actually do what they say to get yourself out of it. Yeah. Okay, verse 17. And indeed I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. And then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Interesting there because Pharaoh's heart's already hard. That's why he came out here in the wilderness. Uh, but think about the level of stubbornness that it would take to go follow them into this sea. Uh, I mean, that is an extreme risk. Uh, and he's just that stubborn to think. And I picture this, and, and, and this is what I've learned as I've gone over it again even today. Uh, as they're moving through the sea, you'll see the cloud is following them. There's going to be a cloud that's separating the two. The cloud is following them. And so Egypt is still following behind. Uh, and they're separated from Israel. But everything that happened prior to this, when they were in Egypt and the plagues were occurring, that was never a conflict with Egypt's army. That was a conflict between God and Egypt's gods. But now, one of the people that was considered a god, Pharaoh, has his armies. So this is a, a real battle. And so the challenge here is that Pharaoh is saying, look, uh, he may have defeated the land and nature and all those gods, but I'll tell you what, I'm a real god. And so I'm going to prove it. I'm going to follow it. And you can just see his stubbornness develop. And God uses that as an opportunity to show the Israelites and all of Egypt there is no power that can stand against God. This is something I don't think about often, but whenever God delivers us from a situation or God works in our life, we don't usually think about how, one, it's it's a testimony for us. You know, that makes sense. But it's also a testimony for other people. And that's something I don't think about often, looking to how God works 
outside of my normal vision, outside of what I normally see for myself, to see God working in the world. And in the lives of others even. Yeah. Okay, verse 19. And the angel of God, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. So now two elements had been moved. Some kind of a theophany or a representation of, of the Godhead, uh, which if you study through the Bible, we don't have time to get in depth with this, but if you study through the Old Testament, usually when we're reading about the angel of the Lord, we are reading about the pre-incarnate Christ, the Word that would become flesh from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 and verse 14. So this is a representation of God. This is the second personality of the Godhead that's a part of the leadership taking Israel where they're supposed to go, has now moved to be behind them. And the only reason to do that is because he's their protector. But also moving is the cloud. The cloud that they're supposed to be following is behind them now. And they're going to cross without following it. They're going to cross with it behind them. And as it is uh, behind them, what it's doing is it's creating a barrier as well as continuing to provide. So on one kind of side, you have darkness uh, preventing the, the Egyptians from seeing through it or crossing through it. And on the other side, you have light that's being produced for the Israelites so that they can see what's continuing to happen and what God's doing, and they're going to see the, the sea part so they can cross through it. So now you have both elements behind and protecting and separating uh, Israel from the Egyptians. Yeah, and although they may have known of the angel of God from stories of Abraham and Isaac and their forefathers, this is the first time they're personally experiencing it. Yeah. But it won't be the last. We'll go on to read that they'll find more and more examples of God in a physical form in their experience. You'll see Moses on Mount Sinai. You'll see them down the road as well. And yet, I can only imagine being Israel in this situation and just being completely confused to what is going on. Yeah, and this takes a lot of trust, doesn't it? All right, verse 21. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariot, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass, well, let's stop there just a second. We want to make sure we keep the picture here. So the sea is parted. We don't read that the sea parted gradually throughout the whole night. What we read is this huge group of people, some 600,000 men, which as we've talked about in other classes, uh, kind of estimates out to be maybe 2 million, maybe even 3 million Israelites, some of whom obviously would be elderly, some of whom would be very young. It would be a difficult, not rapid uh, journey. So what we're reading is it takes them the whole night to cross. So God, not only does he bring this wind that separates out the water and dries the ground immediately, but it stays there. It stays there so that all night they're journeying across this sea to get across. And at the same time, the, somewhere behind them is this cloud that is separating Egypt, but it has allowed them evidently to go into the sea. They're following. They're just still a ways behind because of this cloud. So God takes care of them, and they don't cross. You know, if you've ever 
Uh, been around where it's been a drought and the uh, a pond. I remember on the farms where I was growing up that sometimes a pond would dry up in the summer if it hasn't rained and it's become hot. And you could get out and you could walk on that dry pond bed. But here's what would happen. At some point you would get to a place where you would hit almost like quicksand uh, because the mud was still there. Uh, even though it looked dry and it would be cracked, there was still enough mud there that you could sink in it and it would hold you. You couldn't hardly get out of it sometimes. Uh, that's not what the seabed was like on this night. God dried it up and it was solid for them to walk across. Yeah. And just to like emphasize how miraculous this would have appeared to them, this isn't a little stream or a small river. Egypt has a geography where large rivers just appear almost in the span of a couple days. Rivers that can span miles wide. And for them to take the entire night to cross, we're assuming this is at least a mile in width. Yeah, and it's not a pond. He calls it the sea. Somehow, wherever it is, and we don't, you know, there's a lot of speculation on where this is, and, and I've read a, a lot of the different things about it, and there's nobody that knows for sure. But no matter what it is, it's not a little pond. This is a sea. So at the very least, they're in a situation where, as, as Rich has said, you know, this has a depth and it has a width that without God, there's no way they're going to walk across it. Yeah. Okay, 24. Now, it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians, and he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And I've often wondered uh, this uh, why? You know, why is it that God's knocking their wheels off and causing problems? But if you think about it, if this cloud is following Israel through the sea and Egypt is following the cloud, then they're not that far separated. There's a separation, but it's not that far. And so as the last of the Israelite people gets out of the sea the next morning, you know that that, that at least a part of the Egyptian army has got to be getting close, right? If there is only this cloud that's separating. So how does God change that? Well, how he changes it, he knocks the wheels off their chariots. So now there's no speed to this army. They are all on foot. The leaders are now crippled in what they can accomplish in an easy way. So God has delayed them to keep them in the middle of this sea long enough for Israel to get all the way out. And then his next move, which is going to be to bring the waters in. Just like bring it to mind like i don't know if you've ever walked through the ocean or you walk through a wide river it's not smooth land you know it is going to be rocky and uneven and that's going to slow them down quite a bit it might be why it took israel so long to cross in the first place but it's also the reason why god is stopping them right here in this specific place yeah okay 26 and then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots, and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of, in the, midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remain. Now we stop there. Uh, you know, this is not a Charlton Heston movie. This is not the waters are coming in and they just keep running into the sea like some kind of blind, uh, you know, army. That's not what's happening. They're in the sea. Their chariots are being fall are falling apart, so they can't even retreat with any speed. 
And now all of a sudden, Moses does the same thing he did on the other side, which is hold out that rod. Only this time, instead of parting the sea, it brings it all in. And all of its depth. Can you imagine? Uh, anybody who's been around a hurricane, you can gain some imagination of this or understanding of this. Uh, when, when the news reports on the hurricanes, most of the time what you see is all that, that vicious wind. The wind, and it's blowing roof off of a house or a business or something like that. It's blowing a, a tree over. But what what you learn when you live through them is the wind is not the problem. The water's the problem. The water is so intense and so much more powerful. Something that can you know sustain great winds cannot defeat the power of water. So you can imagine the violence that this this crushing in all of a sudden of this water on these Egyptians would have created. Uh, but but the point is, God is bringing about the demise of every single one of them. Not one of those who went into that sea were able to escape. Not of the Egyptians. Until recently, I never thought about why God chose to do some miracles himself, like knocking off the wheels, and why others he let Moses do in like these great actions. And like just recently, it came to me that the people of Israel were questioning Moses. They were accusing him of having like very ill intentions. Right. And this is God here allowing Moses to be the representation of his miracle to prove to Israel that he is their chosen leader. Yeah. Okay, verse 29. There's a contrast. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left, so that none of them were in any danger. God delivered them out. The waters were on the Egyptians. So, the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So they have gained faith because they have seen. And that's what the Hebrews writer said faith was, right? It was based on the evidence of things not seen. They saw the evidence. Now they believe God. They saw the evidence, and now they have learned to trust him. And the evidence is, just like on the other side of the river when Moses said, you know, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Today you won't see Egypt again. Now they've crossed. Guess what? They're not going to see him again. That army has drowned in the sea, and Egypt or Israel for the first time is now finally free. Yeah. This isn't the first time we've seen this example, and it's not the last, but it's interesting to see here that Death and water is representative of their new life. Right. And I think that's, I don't know, it's something that you think about a lot with the flood and you think about with baptism, but you don't often think about it with the crossing the Red Sea because it's not, because it's more gruesome. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, uh, Paul makes that direct connection in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that that Rich is making there with the water and, and everything with this crossing. Okay, uh, we thank you for joining us, and we'll be back again next week in Exodus chapter 15. You can study it between now and then. We will close now tonight with a prayer. Dear Lord, our Father, we are so thankful for your presence in our lives. We're so thankful that you have given us this gift of your word, that we can use it to learn examples of how you act, how people have served you previously, and how we can continue to grow in you to be better servants for you. Lord, we ask that we take this message to heart, that we can use it in our own lives, be better servants, to be better examples, Lord, that we can bring it to others who do not yet know you and bring them closer to you. God, we ask that you stay with us always, that you continue to allow us to worship you, to serve in your word, 
and to be representatives of here, you here on earth. It's in your son's holy name we pray. 